Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Barbara Ween. She teaches gender, global security, and peace education at American University. Since 1981, she has worked to strengthen grassroots civil society networks for peace and democracy in 58 countries. She has led eight national nonprofit organizations, taught at six universities, and helped spark the development of 200 university peace studies programs. She's the author, editor, of 23 publications in gender, economics, and nonviolence. She's protected civilians from death squads using nonviolent strategies for Peace Brigades International. She was recognized for her leadership and moral courage for denouncing the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq as a U.S. government official. Barbara Ween, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. I understand you were just part of this march to protest the uh, the work of the, the NRA. Can you uh, recount what happened there? Absolutely, yes. Uh, over a thousand people marched from Fairfax, Virginia, at the headquarters of the National Rifle Association to the Department of Justice, about 17 miles, because we believe that we must respond to conflict with skills. We must respond to violence with skills, not more guns. And too many young people are losing their lives, too many police officers, school children, uh, young African Americans in the United States, and we said, enough, stop. And it was a beautiful display of solidarity and strategic partnerships. It was largely young people who led the march, young people of color, and moms who demand action for sensible gun laws in the United States. So to see that kind of coalition was very inspiring. We marched in 106-degree heat in very high humidity. We were hit by thunderstorms in the afternoon. But the spirit was beautiful, and we will persist, and we are not uh, deterred um, by bullying. And we have spoke plainly and clearly to the press. We got great press in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and all major network news. Well, I, I hope it uh, makes an impression on members of Congress that they haven't been paid enough not to hear uh, because they, they need to hear it. Um, yes, unfortunately, there is an iron triangle between the gun manufacturers, those who are profiting from all the violence, Smith uh, and Beretta and all the big gun makers, they have a very, very strong relationship with the National Rifle Association. In fact, they are the board of the NRA. And then the NRA then helps fund the campaigns of members of Congress. So it is a reinforcing iron triangle, not unlike the major weapons producers for military spending uh, and war making. Those that produce the weapons then fund lobbying groups like the National Rifle Association and that NRA then uh, ensures the re-election of uh, elected officials and members of Congress. We have to carve off the edges of that iron triangle 
with nonviolent peace education, grassroots movements, and social media. Uh, the got kinds of things like radio, television, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and all the other social media that young people are using now to raise consciousness. We've well, got to transform that iron triangle into a peacemaking circle. Absolutely. This is something I wanted to ask you about with, with peace studies in particular, um, because it seems like uh, peace activism in terms of opposing wars, uh, you know, not opposing domestic gun violence or domestic violence in homes or violent cultures in our schools and communities, but actually trying to end wars uh, seems to be there seems to be quite a chasm between that and peace studies in universities, where mostly what I hear about is the sort of things you hear about from the U.S. Institute of Peace. You know, how can we provide aid in those poor nations around the world that the United States is not bombing at the moment? Or, you know, is, is, there a, is there a gap uh, as I'm perceiving it, or is peace studies really studying how to end war? Well, there's a spectrum, uh, and these things are interrelated. There's a continuum of violence, as you said, starting at the, you know, the very germicidal level, the very uh, granular level in the home, all the way up to nuclear weapons. So peace education must begin with the smallest children, with the youngest children, to teach creative responses to conflict and unleash our imagination about how we can live together through transforming uh, consciousness, attitudes, skills, behavior, um, and then scaling up all along the continuum of human existence uh, to uh, looking at intergroup relations, intercommunal um, relations, societal relations, the way we design our programs, policies, uh, public institutions, uh, and then, of course, all the way up to the international level, how can nations form cooperative relationships? The whole vision of peace education and peace studies is to transform the way that the world deals with conflict away from adversarial approaches and militarized approaches uh, towards cooperative solutions. And so the first theory of change that peace education embraces um, is to develop a critical mass of individuals uh, by investing in education, youth training, personal transformation, consciousness raising, you know, workshops, dialogues, encounter groups, trauma healing. And there you begin to demonstrate to people that conflict resolution actually can work. Um, they see it in their everyday lives. They, they see concrete examples of it, and they are much more convinced of the evidence. I think if we start off sometimes with distant issues of foreign affairs, we will lose people. So often when I've worked with rural communities and very disenfranchised communities, rural poor, or I work with community college students who are largely blue-collar workers, um, middle to low income folks. I, I don't necessarily always start off with ending war. 
um, I start off with meal ticket issues at the local level and show them the trade-offs that exist between mass military spending and how that money could be used to reinvest into human needs in their local community, uh, into job training and green energy and education and health care. And that really shifts their framework, their paradigm. But we must go on to look at healthy relationships and all the connections uh, breaking out of isolation and polarization and division and prejudice and stereotypes among groups. We have to look at strong trust building and relationship building. And there you really get into more the intergroup work and the networking and the coalition building and joint efforts on substantive problems. This is what I've done with displaced communities of laid-off timber workers in the Pacific Northwest or Rust Belt workers um, in the Midwest or uh, folks in the rural South. We come together and we teach large-scale facilitation, problem-solving, conflict analysis. Okay, you've got major problems, structural problems in your community. Why turn against each other or why turn against immigrants or blacks or liberals or environmentalists? Why don't we come together as a community and solve this and, and begin the process of uh, critical analysis? What could be alternative jobs? How could we come together to generate green jobs, which actually employs 10 times the number of people um, as some of these uh, poisonous, um, polluting industries? But then we have to get to deeper underlying issues of injustice, oppression, exploitation, class differences, um, identity politics, if you will, and people's sense of injury and victimization. So there we have to do large-scale, long-term campaigns for social and structural change, truth and reconciliation, changing institutions, laws, regulations and particularly the economic system, which pits people against each other in a race to the bottom increasingly, and, you know, reframing the whole question of globalization. Uh, And then peace studies must begin to look at how do we mobilize people in opposition to war? How do we get political leaders to pay attention? And there you have to mobilize the grassroots to advocate for positive action using the media, nonviolent direct action campaigns, boycotts, sanctions, divestment, organizing advocacy groups, dramatic events to raise consciousness. And there are so many creative campaigns around the world now. And um, you can go to the website Beautiful Rising or read the book Beautiful Trouble which chronicles and documents the rise of so many nonviolent struggles and campaigns around the world. Um, And then we have to shift public attitudes. War and violence are deeply ingrained in people's misperceptions and intolerance of difference, and they have only been fed a steady diet of Uh, violence as a solution to things. They think that militarism and war is the way to protect themselves. We have to vastly transform public attitudes to show that war does not make us safer. War actually creates the very threats we seek to avoid. Uh, So all of these things are interconnected. and, And peace education studies have shown that when you institute peaceful attitudes and cooperative uh, lesson plans in school,
schools at the youngest grade, people will not turn against each other during times of adversity. We've done meta-analysis of all long-term peace education studies now over the last 70 years. I've been collecting them um, from around the world, from Indonesia to Chile to Canada, New Zealand, you know, all over the world. We have peace education studies in Africa. And it shows that when uh, extremists come into the community, if there's been peace education instituted in the schools, it inoculates and vaccinates populations against hate. And they're much more likely to band together to resist violence and to try to transform uh, the negative influences in their community into positive action. Uh, Barbara Ween, I am still struck by the fact that the the biggest uh, uh, force financially in our country, the, the war profiteers, the weapons dealers, uh, are not just major, uh, you know, major funders of election campaigns, they're major funders of our universities. Uh, and uh, maybe I'm just cynical, but I run into so many U.S. academics who study war as something produced by dark-skinned places uh, anywhere other than the U.S., or genocide studies as, you know, studying war created by non-U.S., non-Western people. Uh, and, the, the, you know, Steven Pinker and these types who have, you know, declared war virtually over by blinding themselves to any U.S. wars uh, and looking at only non-U.S. wars as the sum total of, of war in the world. I, I'm wondering what percentage of, of peace studies courses do you think are, are opposing U.S. war making? Oh, I would say the overwhelming majority of them are. Um, now, there are different faces of conflict resolution courses um, that mostly deal with intergroup dynamics and don't necessarily take on the institution of war. But in the Peace and Justice Studies Association, I would say the preponderance of the programs I've worked with over the years really see war as the enemy, war as a system. We have to take on the war system. Um, of course, the United States is not the only one perpetuating war at this time, and there are tyrannical governments around the world that are waging war against their own people. Um, but yes, we are the largest purveyor of violence on the planet at this point. We outstrip all of our adversaries by a magnitude of, you know, five times in military spending. Um, the levels of U.S. military spending are obscene. And we are, uh, you know, completely unaffordable, um, unsustainable. And um, we're beginning to see the effects of that in the United States very, very deeply um, with the lack of health care and jobs and the infrastructure crumbling. Uh, the National Association of Civil Engineers says it's going to take about 6 to $11 trillion repair all of the bridges, railroads, and infrastructure in the United States, the sewage system. That's how much we've spent on the Iraq and Afghan wars combined over the last 15 years. So it completely mirrors the expenditures um, on war that we need to sustain the health and uh, vitality of our country. So the U.S. is, you know, really 
leader of the pack in terms of militarism um, and, and war spending. But, of course, we are not the only ones, and the glorification of war um, is still quite prominent in other countries. So peace studies takes on the whole institution of war. We look at the roots of war. If you um, uh, dissect or uh, deconstruct the textbooks that are used in peace studies, um, we look at psychological attitudes, we look at economic systems that make war profitable, uh, we look at, you know, the whole adrenaline uh, rush that some people get from uh, war and war fighting, we look at patriarchy, how men's um, power uh, to dominate and rule also um, it takes on many different forms of violence that leads to uh, mass rape and gender-based violence. Um, so we look at the, you know, uh, asymmetry to, between male and female um, representation around the world. Um, so we look at about 10 or 12 major roots of violence in the world uh, that need to be transformed and rooted out. Uh, but um, there are those programs that shy away from really uh, critiquing U.S. government policies or U.S. foreign policies. Um, they don't take on the question of arms sales and who's profiting, and the greed and the um, military-industrial complex. Some, uh, some programs, I would say, are really security studies programs. They're not considered peace studies programs. Um, or they uh, shy away from taking on the institution of war itself. They've kind of watered down um, peace studies from its original origins, um, and they r largely look at intergroup relations and dialogue. I was expecting you from our previous conversations to uh, to talk about that problem as as uh, as being ubiquitous. It sounds like you're describing it as a minority of of the programs out there. Yeah, I, in the in the if we do a survey of the justice and peace studies programs, I would say that probably about twenty to thirty percent of them are just looking at conflict resolution skills, processes, attitudes. You know how to get people to the negotiating table, what are comparative peace uh, truces, and, you know, where have um, we been successful in ending wars? What were the conditions around that? Um, not enough of them also look at the role of uh, grassroots women's coalitions in bringing that about. Um, gender is uh, sorely missing from a lot of them. But I would say probably about 60% uh, of or seventy percent of the programs I've worked with at the undergraduate level um, have taken on questions of war, militarism, military spending. Now there is this, you know, tendency or notion that you really have to professionalize peace studies at the graduate level, um, so they have to come away with marketable skills if they've spent all this money on a, a master's degree. Uh, or a Ph.D., then they have to be able to go out and, you know, work in government agencies or the Foreign Service or the United Nations um, or in refugee camps rehabilitating child soldiers or, you know, trying to strengthen community resilience uh, against violence at the grassroots level. So there you will have, you know, more clinical approaches, 
more monitoring and evaluation um, and less of a critique of U.S. government policy. Um, so I would distinguish between a lot of the undergraduate programs and the master's degrees. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. So if the if the peace movement groups that I work with get more money and more jobs to offer, maybe there will be more education of students to fill those jobs. Um, Absolutely. I- and um, we are finding that a lot of our graduates Um, at American University in the master's program in international peace and conflict resolution have also turned their skills inward domestically. So they've become violence interrupters in their communities. Um, They're working with gangs in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, They established one of the first uh, academies for nonviolence among Crips and Bloods. And um, these young people uh, that are former members of gangs are channeling and organizing, galvanizing and mobilizing their populations against police violence, trying to create safe streets, uh, jobs, Um, going back to a lot of the roots of what the Black Panthers were trying to do, breakfast programs and, um, you know, creating uh, cooperative networks for economics in South Central Los Angeles. We're seeing that increasingly in Detroit. Um, there is a co-op like that, a People's Resistance uh, Collective here at the Peace House in Washington, D.C., led by African-American young people. Um, so they're fanning out and doing water distribution among the homeless on hot days in D.C. They have a free clothing collective, um, uh, free uh you know, uh, housing, and we're building up networks of those across the country to offer an alternative to the uh, predatory economic model. There's more and more, um, you know, cooperative banks and land trusts and back-to-the-land movement and housing cooperatives, uh, co-housing and communal forms of support. Um, the Institute for Self, Local Self-Reliance, uh, farm cooperatives, People um, are seeing the links between violent economics and also militarism at the international level. Yeah. So they're trying to de-link from the dominant economic institutions and create grassroots alternatives. Gandhi always said, you know, you have to have the obstructive program to resist evil and war, but you also have to have the constructive program. More importantly, yeah, yes, more paramount to begin to build alternative economic institutions while you're dismantling the old ones. Yes, a uh, very important point. We've uh, got just a few minutes left. Barbara Ween, the, uh I wanted to ask you briefly about workshops you've been doing for federal employees uh, and the fact that you were among those arrested uh, protesting the inauguration of, of Donald Trump and, and find out the, the, the status of that. Well, the resistance against tyranny is very, very deep and very, very broad in the United States. Uh, we haven't even begun to um, get a sense of how deep and broad it really is, and it takes on many, many faces. Uh, so, you know, one of the uh, biggest um, networks of resistance I have worked with are synagogues and churches. Uh, that are over 300 strong in the Maryland, Virginia district area, where they are actually supporting and uh, housing and sheltering 
those uh, immigrants who feel at risk, whose families are being ripped apart. Um, and we have rapid response networks set up. We have um, phone trees. People go down to Farmville in Virginia where immigrants are being detained. Uh, and we circle the prison there and sing and hold the space uh, for immigrant families who are so fearful and um, whose children are so at risk. Um, but then we have hundreds and thousands of federal workers who are examining their role in resisting unconstitutional legal orders within their government agencies. So we've held a series of uh, workshops called Resist, Retreat, or Resign, so that government workers can learn what are your rights in the workplace, what is federally protected, um, how can the American Federation of Government Employees protect you, um, what are you allowed to do in the workplace uh, that is, um, you know, respectable and allowable within the limits of um, the um, Hatch Act. Uh, and uh, federal employees do have First Amendment rights, and they are allowed to voice their opinions and be part of political campaigns. They just can't do it on government time, on the government dime. Um, and so many people are uh, looking at the rules, regulations, and laws um, within, you know, the EPA, the National Institutes of Health, the State Department, the Defense Department, Homeland Security, and saying, no, I'm not going to carry out orders that violate the Constitution, and there are laws that protect uh, civil servants in this way. And I consider that the highest form of patriotism, because they took an oath of office to the Constitution, not to a political party or to a president. They were sworn into office to uphold the uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So it's very important that they're respecting those democratic uh, rules. Um, and then, of course, there are many other forms of resistance that are happening on college campuses, in the women's movements, in inner cities, with governors, the National League of Cities, um, and so many others I can't even begin to report on. But... Um, we did march um, with Native Americans, environmental groups, women's groups, uh, peace groups uh, on the day of Trump's inauguration um, because we felt that the um, newly uh, regime, put in place regime, uh, the Trump regime, um, was not legitimately elected. Uh, we felt that we really had a coup d'etat in America in November because of all the gerrymandering that's happened around the country, um, a lot of people were shut out of voting. We um, estimate that 36,000 students in the state of Kansas were not allowed to vote because they couldn't produce a birth certificate. About 300,000 Hispanics were disenfranchised in Texas. Um, and on and on and on, people's um, election districts Barbara, were with, up. Barbara, with 20 seconds left, uh, do you, are you still facing uh, charges uh, for that arrest? I am not, but there are young people who are have been falsely accused of felony rioting. So the American Civil Liberties Union um, is suing the D.C. police for wrongful arrest. Um, and um, that trial will begin this year, later this year. Um, 280 young people um, who were peacefully protesting were rounded up through trap and detain. 
um, and falsely accused of felony rioting. So I've been trying to offer court support, and there are many of us that are involved in trying to um, reverse those charges against them. Those people need our support, and all of the wonderful work that you are doing, Barbara Ween, needs our support. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at a conference at American University that World Beyond War is planning for September 22nd to 24th that people can find at worldbeyondwar.org. Barbara Ween, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Keep up the good work yourself. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.